Luke chapter number 6. And I'd like to begin reading at verse number 6. Luke chapter number 6, verse number 6. The Bible says this, And it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he, Jesus, entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, watched Jesus, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? Looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for letting us be here today. Thank you for the sweet Word of God, Lord, and, and the sweet Holy Spirit. We've already felt Him ministering in this place, working, Lord. We've, we have experienced enough this morning to know that You're real, Lord. Even if we were to uh, never feel You again, Lord, we have had enough today to know that there's a God in heaven, that He's concerned with the hearts and the lives of men, that He deals with us, Lord, that He's a personal God, that He's a powerful God, that He's a pardoning God. Lord, we just want to thank You for being real in our lives. I pray that You would now take the Word of God and make it real in our lives as well. Lord, let it not just be an academic pursuit today, but may there be a spiritual work done in our lives as we open our hearts to You. As we come today, Lord, not see what You do in others' lives, but what You do in our life. Uh, Lord, I pray that You would have Your will and Your way. Now, I pray if there's any that are lost and undone, uh, Lord, that are under the sound of my voice, that they don't know that heaven's their home, they don't know that they're saved, I pray they not leave here in that condition, Lord, for you know God and I know that they don't have to leave like that. You made a way through the cross of Calvary uh, that they could know that they are saved. They don't have to wonder, they don't have to doubt, they don't have to wait until they die to find out. Uh, Lord, they can know today that they're saved on their way to heaven, that they're a child of God. And I pray, Lord, that they not live another day wondering and doubting, but that they'd come to Christ and be saved. Lord, I thank you for what you have done, and I surely thank you for what I know you will do, and you deserve all the praise for every bit of it. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Luke chapter number 6, we have one in a series of uh, works that God performs, uh, that the Lord Jesus performs in synagogue. Now, synagogue is an interesting place for the Lord Jesus to be performing a miracle. The synagogue was, to the Jews of that day, similar in some ways to attending church in our day. That's not lost on me, the differences, distinctions between them. But socially and culturally, when a person went to the synagogue in that day, it was sort of like you and I coming to church in, in this day. Now, a few times a year, they'd go down to Jerusalem, to the temple, and they'd worship, they'd attend feasts, but every uh, Friday evening, every Saturday morning, every Sabbath day, uh, they would go to the synagogue and they would listen to the teaching of the Word of God uh, and they would uh, associate with the people of God. In fact, that's why it reminds me of, of church. The synagogue was a place of association for the people of God. You say, preacher, why, why do you go to church? I go to church to get around the people of God. Amen? I need the people of God in my life. I need fellowship with the people of God. Man, I need encouragement from the people of God. And uh, while certainly I don't want to cloister myself away from a lost and dying world, uh, let me say I, I don't feel any more at home than when I'm in the house of God uh, around the people of God. So it was a place of association 
for the people of God. Number two, it was a place of instruction in the Word of God. The Bible tells us here that Jesus went in and taught. Uh, it was Jesus' custom to go to church, the Bible tells us in the book of Luke. And uh, whenever He entered into public ministry, He would go and He would teach in the synagogue on some occasions. And that's what the synagogue was mostly centered around. People would come and various rabbis, various individuals would teach the Word of God. So ideally, it was a place where you could go and hear truth about God. Hey, you know why I come to church? Because I need to learn the Bible. I need to know the Bible. Uh, listen, I, I've been studying the Bible for a number of years now. I've been preaching uh, for a number of years. But you don't ever get to the point you don't need to learn more about God. You always need to learn more about God. Uh, if anybody in here would claim to know everything there is to know, I sure wish you'd tell me how you got there because I'd love to get there. But the fact is, you need the teaching of the Word of God just like I do. But then the synagogue, why did they do this? So they went and spent time with the people of God. They went and learned the truth of God. Why did they do those things? Well, the synagogue was also a place of development for a relationship with God. Now, it's not to say the only place you could grow was at the synagogue, but a good place to grow was at the synagogue. Uh, there's a lot of folks have this sort of uh, cynical attitude about church. They'll say, well, you know, I'm I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I still ain't figured out what that, what that means, amen. But uh, they'll say, well, I'm spiritual, but you know, I'm not religious. I don't go to church. Uh, and, uh, and people will say things like this. I don't believe you have to go to church uh, to uh, become a good Christian or to learn things of God. And I would agree with you. You can read your Bible at home, but there ain't no better place to develop your relationship with God than the house of God. If you think that lazy boy is a better place to get close to God, you're going to have to show me how you did that. Amen? Either that or we'll put lazy boy... No, I'm not going to say that. Yeah. Things, will, things will come spun unloose at the next business meeting. No, the fact is, hey, and people say, well, there's there's places I can go and and uh, I can still commune with God. Yeah, but the best place is the house of God. And if you don't believe that, why did God give us a church? Why did He instruct us to meet upon the first day of the week? Why did He instruct these things if we don't need it? So the synagogue was to the Jews of that day similar in some ways to attending church in our day. And I find it interesting when I read this passage, there's a phenomenon that takes place that takes place even today when we come to the house of God we see that different people experience this day at the synagogue in radically different ways. There are different groups of people here, and I'll say a word about it in a moment, but all of these groups of people, they all went to the same synagogue on the same day, but all of them, or these three, would walk away having different ideas about what had happened on that day. For instance, for some, it was probably a mundane day. A mediocre day. What we would call just a typical day. The Bible says in verse 6 that uh, Jesus, He entered into the synagogue and He taught. Now, if you got there before Jesus showed up, or if you got there after He left, uh, or if you just weren't paying attention while He was teaching, this would have just been another day at the synagogue. You would have gone and went through the same motions that you had always gone through. You ever had a mundane day at church? It's alright, you can be honest. It ain't going to hurt my feelings. You ever had a day that was just a day at church? I've had days it's just been a day at church. I mean, I'm the pastor and I'll admit that. There's been days where I've gone in and I said, well, you know, I didn't hit a home run, but I didn't lay an egg either. There's been days I've come in and I've said, well, you know, we weren't blown it out attendance-wise, but we had enough to have church. There's been days I've come in and I've said, well, they didn't sing my favorite songs, but they didn't sing the ones I don't like. Just days that were just sort of mundane days. And oftentimes in the house of God, you'll have what's called a mundane day. But then I see in verse 11... 
There's another group of people that reacted completely different. The Bible says after this miracle that they, the Pharisees, were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. So for some of them it was a mundane day, but for others it was a maddening day. They got offended at what had been done that day. That's part of the reason I'm so offensive, amen? I just don't want you to get bored. Somebody say amen to that. Listen, if you can't be happy, I'd rather you be offended, amen? But there were some, now think about this, some people filtered through that day and didn't see anything remarkable. But these men went that day and they heard something, they saw something that bit them to the very core, that enraged them, that when they left, they were fighting mad. I've had times that people have got mad at me for things that I've said and and uh, more often than not, people get mad at the things that God says in His Word. And there's been times even that I've sat in preaching and something uh, smote my heart and, and my flesh rose up in rebellion and pride and didn't want to submit to the truth of God. And I got angry and I got mad. And I, Listen, I hope that don't happen to you today. But I promise if you get mad at me today, you won't be the first person. And unless you just shoot and kill me, uh, you won't be the last one either. Amen. Uh, it was a maddening day. But I see there was another person there that day. The Bible says that there was a man there with a withered hand. And for some it was a mundane day. Nothing major happened. For others it was a maddening day. They were offended. They were angry. They, they, they left in a huff. They left angry and promised that they were never going to allow this to happen to them again. But for this man, it was a miraculous day. For one man there, his life was forever changed. Can I tell you something I've observed? And I observed this as a young Christian. And, and when I did, I'll be honest with you, I just sort of chalked it up to fakeness. But now, with the benefit of a couple years, uh, a few years, I, I, you know, I'm beginning to see and discern this. It's possible for in a room this size uh, for there to be three entire different church services take place at the same time. It's possible that there's going to be people in here that are going to go home and you're going to say, well, that was just another day. Nothing big happened in your life. It's possible that there might be some that would say, well, there's something the preacher said made me mad or somebody else did something made me angry. They offended me. And you can go home. You can be angry. You can get in a huff and nobody will care but the devil and you. And then there's others. There's others that can walk away from this place saying, man, God did an incredible thing in my life today. Can I tell you who decides that? It's not the Lord. You say, now wait a minute, the Lord decides everything. Well, that's not true. He has already decided that He desires to do a work in your heart and life. It's not the devil that decides it because he can't thwart what God's trying to do unless we allow him to. It's not the preacher that decides it. It's not the other people that decide it. The only person that decides what church holds for you today is you. Is you. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. Getting help in the house of God. I want to get help when I come to the house of God. Here's a whole group of people on this day that came into the synagogue. Some of them got nothing. Some of them got mad. Thank God there was somebody that got help that day in the house of God. And I want to know how I can come to the house of God and get help for the things that I'm going through. When I read this passage of Scripture, I notice there's basically three different groups of people here. Notice them with me because it's a cross-section of the church today. The Bible says in verse number 6, it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and he taught. Now, if the Bible says he taught, it implies that there's people there to teach. There were people there that was listening. There were people there that desired to hear from God. I'd say this, number one, there was a group of people there that were holy and sincere. 
There were people there that were there because they wanted to hear from God. They wanted to learn who God was. Let me say, thank God. Hey, there may be some people go to church for the wrong reasons. I know that happens. But I'm thankful there's some folks go to church for the right reasons. I'm thankful that there's people, they don't come just to hear what the preacher's going to say. They don't come just to see what the latest gossip is. They come because they need God and they want to hear from Him. There were... Uh, holy people, sincere people that day. But verse 7 says there was another group. The Bible says and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on that day. Now, if we just stopped there, we might attribute good motive to them. Maybe they had come because they were excited at the prospect that God was once again moving in the nation of Israel. After 450 years of silence, the Messiah had come and now God was working again, but we find that's not the case. It says the reason they watched was that they might find an accusation against him. What business did those people have in the synagogue? They were not at the synagogue for the reason that the synagogue existed. The synagogue did not exist so that you'd come and thumb your nose at God. That's why they had come. They were not there because they desired to see God do something real. They pretended that they were, but that's not what they were there for. They were cynics, they were skeptics, they were scorners and scoffers, and they showed up just to see what was going to take place, hoping that God would not work in that place. Let me say, not only was there people there that were holy and sincere, there were indeed people there that were hypocrites and cynics. Let me tell you, I'm just being honest with you, I think we've got the greatest church in the world, period. And if you don't believe that, that's fine. You're entitled to your wrong opinion. No, God's working in a lot of places, but I love our church. But let me tell you something, I don't care where it is, you get a group of people together, there's going to be folks there that's hypocrites. There's going to be folks that show up, don't expect God to work. There's going to be folks that show up that's just going through the motions. Now before you say, oh preacher, that's terrible to say, watch out, it could be you next. I'm not saying that once a hypocrite, always a hypocrite. I'm saying there's been times in my life that I've come in with the wrong spirit, with the wrong attitude, and I've been the one that's been a hindrance to the work of God. And there's probably been times in your life that that's been the case with you. But if your idea is, well, I ain't going to go down to church because there's hypocrites there, because there's cynics there, it don't matter where you go, you're going to find hypocrites. It don't matter where you go, you're going to find people that don't believe God can do anything. It don't matter where you go, you're going to find people that believe your life is not worth anything. And that's who these men were. They were hypocrites and cynics. But then I notice a third group, and it's really characterized by this one man. It says in verse 6, there was a man whose right hand was withered. Listen carefully to me this morning. There were holy and sincere people there, people that wanted God to work. There were hypocrites and cynics there, people that didn't want God to work. But I want you to notice that there were hurting and suffering people there that day. There were people that needed God to work. Anytime you come into the house of God, guess what? There's people around you that's hurting. That's dealing with things. That's struggling with things. There's people come in the room today, I promise you, that feel like they're barely treading water. And if God don't do something, they feel that they're going to go under. The house of God is a place for hurting people. It's not a place for people that are perfect. It's a place for people that are broken. And it don't matter how long somebody's been saved. It don't matter how long that they've walked with God. They still experience seasons and times in their life when they have a great abiding deep need for God to do something out of the ordinary in their life. I don't just mean the everyday sustaining that He always does, but they need Him to show up and do something in their heart. That was this man this day. He was a hurting and suffering man. Is that a place? Is there a place at church for hurting people? I think when we read this text, we find out there is. The focus of this passage is this man. 
He is the one that God draws our attention to. So what important things should we first consider about the man with the withered hand? There's not much that we know. We don't know what his name is. We don't know how old he was. We don't know where he was born. We don't know if he had a job, what his job had been. All we know about this man is his withered hand. Can I say this? We can allow hurt to define us in life. Such that that's all that we know about us and that's all that anybody else knows about us. Who was he? He was the man with the withered hand. Who are you going to be? Are you going to allow the hurt you've experienced to make you the withered person? He was a man with a withered hand. What can we learn? Well, I I note first off the history of his injury. The word for withered here denotes the idea of the shrinking of the hand. And that, of course, is the idea behind withering. But it probably denotes a drying up, an atrophying of the hand. But here's what it does not imply. It does not imply a birth deformity. Rather, it implies a tragic, cataclysmic injury that had taken place. His hand had been injured. You know, there's people in the house of God this morning, you've been hurt. There's been people do things in your life. There's been people say things and you've experienced hurt. And it's a hurt that maybe nobody else knows about, but you know about it and God knows about it. You weren't always that way. Uh, You wish you could go back to the times when you hadn't experienced those things, when they hadn't done you that way, when you hadn't made whatever mistakes, when you hadn't allowed whatever to take place in your life. But here you are today, a withered person. I see the history of his injury. Number two, I note the hindrance of his injury. The crippling of the right hand would be a debilitating injury. It's not just a nosebleed. It's not just an ingrown toenail. With that crippled right hand, it would prevent him from working or ever living a normal life. Can I tell you this? If you won't let God deal with this hurt, things ain't going to get back the way they should be. Listen, I understand there's some things in our life that it's best just bury it and just you know, commit it to the Lord, pretend, whatever. But oftentimes there are things that take place in our life. We can try to dismiss it. We can try to ignore it. We can try to pretend it did not happen. But if we don't let God deal with that thing, it will prevent us from ever being able to serve Him in the way that we desire to. This man, he was hurt. He was withered. He couldn't do anything. But there's something else interesting here. I want you to listen carefully. We see the history of his injury and the hindrance of it. But I want you to think with me about the hiding of his injury. The fact that the Savior commands the man to stretch forth his hand implies that it had been hidden or it had been covered. Let me tell you exactly what this man did. Every Sabbath day it came time to go down to the synagogue. And lest he be a spectacle, he'd take that withered hand and he'd tuck it up and he'd hide it back so that he could go in and pretend as though that hurt did not exist. You know what we often do with the hurts in our life? We think for some reason we have to do this in the house of God. I don't know why that is. God never asks us to. The preacher isn't asking you to. But we get this idea that somehow we have to put on a smile, plaster on that fakeness, come in and pretend like everything is okay. This man did this week after week after week. People knew. They knew what was going on. But listen, what's going on in your life? It may be people know. It may be people don't know. But I'll tell you two people that knew about that withered hand. God knew about it and this man knew about it. He could hide it from everybody else, but he couldn't hide it from himself. He couldn't hide it from God. Every week he did his best. He covered it up. He wrapped it up. He bundled it up. He tried to pretend it was not there. Then one day Jesus shows up. And goes making him drag that broken withered hand all out into the open. You see, the fact is, in this man we have a picture of what often we all go through. 
when we experience hurt. Maybe it's because of choices we've made in our life. We live with guilt and regret. Maybe it's because of things that other people have done to hurt us, betray us, and, and damage our lives. Maybe it's simply we feel as though the things that have befallen us in life in general are somehow not fair or we deserve better, but we take that hurt, we take that withered hand, we take that injury, it's stopping us from serving God, it's stopping us from living for God, but instead of dealing with it or instead of allowing God to deal with it, we just bundle it up and come on into the house of God and pretend like we don't need nothing. We just came to show up and see what was going to happen today. We didn't come because we needed no miracle, we didn't come because we needed no help, we just came because we wanted to bless you with our presence and see what was going to go on and see if the coffee's any good. And we keep playing that game. And you know what we'll find? Think about how many times this man had gone to the synagogue and nothing had ever changed. Think about how many times he had drugged that broken hand into the synagogue and went home as broken as he had been before. It wasn't until this day that something changed. That day he got help in the house of God. And here's the question this morning. How did this man get help that day? What was different about this day from every other day? Well, I'll go ahead and summarize it real quick for you. You know the difference is he met Jesus that day. That's the difference. And I got a lot more sermon to preach and we'll get to it, but let me just give you the cliff notes in case you need to need to check out. Hey, listen, uh, it, until God gets a hold of our lives, ain't nothing going to change. We can have all the church we want. We can have all the services. Hey, listen, I love, we, I was thinking the other day, all we do is eat around here. Somebody say amen. I was looking through all of our various activities. We don't have an activity that we don't either preach or eat. Amen. And that's why I'm so long-winded and broad-waisted. Amen. All we do is just preach and eat around here. Hey, listen, you can go to every service. You can go to everything. You can sign up on every sign-up sheet. You can be a part of everything you want. But until God gets a hold of your life, ain't nothing going to change. Hey, the Lord has to do something. So he met Jesus that day. But what did that process look like? There's three things that are found in verses 8, 9, and 10. I want you to notice them with me and I'll be done. What did it take that day? And what will it take today for God to work in our life? Number one, let me say his involvement is commanded. Look at verse number 8. The Bible says, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Now, this is not just a coincidental occurrence. This is not just something by virtue of uh, of the miracle that Christ would perform that, that necessarily had to take place. In fact, we find when we come to the end of the text that God healed that hand without Him ever bringing that hand out. When He brought the hand out, it was already healed. God didn't need Him to stand so that He could do something, but He needed this man to stand so that this man would allow Him to do some things in His life. In other words, it is illustrative for us, it pictures for us, Certain things that are required if we want to get help. Well, what is required? I would say number one, he had to be present. Had he not been in the synagogue that day, he wouldn't have been healed. And let me just say this, and I'm going to move on, because one of the things every one of you has done right today is come to church. So I ain't interested in fussing at you. But you've got to be here to get help. You've got to be here to get help. You've got to be under the sound of the Word of God. You've got to be in the place where God's working and moving. Now, everyone wants to point to the unusual occurrence when God tracked them down somewhere in the middle of nowhere and smote their heart. The Holy Ghost dealt with them. You say, can God do that? I'm going to ask you this. Why should He have to? Why are we so busy we can't be there? You've got to be here to get help. And I'll tell you this, if you don't make it a priority to be here, don't expect the miracles that you want God to do. Don't expect for God to be real in your life the way you need Him to be. You've got to be here 
to be helped. Notice number two, he tells this man to rise up and stand forth in the midst. Now there's a very simple reason he's doing that. He's using this man as an example. I'll admit to you, our focus today is on this man. But the focus of the passage probably has more to do with the Pharisees and their cynicism and their spirit of unbelief that they had. But for this man's uh, instance, he tells this man to rise up and stand forth in the midst. Why? Because he's going to make him an example when he heals him and performs this miracle. From the Pharisees' perspective, that has a lot of important truth, but think about it from the man's perspective. He just showed up to hear somebody teach, and all of a sudden, church is about him. It's not about nobody else. It's about Him. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever felt like somehow the preacher was preaching just at you? Can I tell you something? I promise you this. I love you. If I, if I could, if I could craft a sermon that would straighten out all your problems just by virtue of my intelligence and ability to speak, I'd spend a hundred hours a week doing it. But I've already recognized that's not the case. And I promise you, uh, whenever I'm in my study, you're not in there with me. It's me and the Lord. I pray for you. I love you. But when I get up to preach, I ain't preaching at you. I ain't preaching for you. I'm preaching for Him. But somehow, miraculously, all of a sudden, it's like the Holy Ghost has come and sat down in your lap and taken the truth of God and began to deal with you about your life. This is vital if we're going to get help. You know what happened? He came to church and all of a sudden church was about Him. You want to get help? From the Lord, when you got to, when you come to church, please hear me out. I don't want you to misunderstand me, but you've got to view church as a thing of you and God. It's not about what He's doing in other people's lives. Praise God, He is doing things in other people's lives. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. They showed up to see what God was going to do in somebody else's life. This man, all of a sudden, his focus is on what God is going to do in his life. He was singled out. He became the focus of the teaching and the recipient of the truth. And we have to view church as a time for God to deal specifically with us. If you come to the house of God looking to see what God's going to do for somebody else, you know what you're going to see? God do something for somebody else. But if you come saying, now Lord, I need help. I need you to work in my life. When you listen to the preaching, you don't say, boy, I bet this is hitting them. Boy, I wish so and so was here. But you say, God, what are you saying to me about? Then you'll find that God will begin to work in your heart and in your life. It had to be, uh, he had to be present, it had to be personal. But then notice this, he had to participate. He says, rise, stand forth in the midst. And don't end there. The Bible tells us, even though it could be implied, it tells us he arose and stood forth. In other words, when called upon to act, he had to be willing. He had to do his part. When God commanded him to move, he had to move. When God commanded him to stand, he had to stand. He couldn't sit back and expect Christ to heal him against his will. Again, man, we hear all kinds of testimonies, and I'm, I'm thankful for them. I, I hear testimonies all the time. People say, you know, it's like God drugged me down to that altar. He shouldn't have to. We hear things, well, you know, it's like God came and tracked me down where I was. I wasn't in church. I wasn't nowhere near church. Praise God he did that, but he shouldn't have to come doing that. The fact is, the way God has ordered it is not that we sit back in defiance and rebellion and dare God to work in our life. And then He does it just to prove that He can. Rather, it ought to be that we desire God to work in our life. And so when God's dealing with us, don't fight God dealing with you. When God says, move, move. When God says to come, come. When God says to yield, yield. Do what God 
asked. So there's some basic things here. His involvement is commanded. Then look at verse 9 with me. The Bible says, Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Christ asked the question, is it lawful? In other words, was it biblically appropriate for Christ to heal this man? Now he is directing this question undoubtedly to the Pharisees because they believe it's not in keeping with the law that Christ would perform this miracle on this day. So Christ was challenging them to consider the law and the entire reason that God had spoken to fallen humanity in the first place. Was the law given to hurt men or to help them? In Matthew's Gospel, Christ likens the man to a sheep that had fallen into a pit. He says, who having a a sheep and and him falling into a pit would not go and, and lift him out of that pit? Who wouldn't rescue their sheep just because it was a Sabbath day. That's that's not in keeping with the spirit of what the Sabbath day was meant for. Of course the law didn't forbid Christ from healing and rescuing this man. The law, listen carefully, the law was not given while man was sinless in the garden. It was given to sinners sinning at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was given to a fallen, withered, and broken people that need God. This was a strong rebuke to the Pharisees. And he's saying, how dare you challenge the willingness of God to heal this man? Of course it's appropriate for me to heal this man on this day. If you say the law forbids it, that just tells me you don't know the law. Then the question becomes this. If you don't think God can work, then why did you come? Here's what he does. His involvement is commanded. Number two, his intentions are considered. Here's the question I have. Number one, what is your purpose here? Think about it from this man's perspective. He came to church. Did he believe God could and would heal him? Or did he not? If he didn't believe God would, why did he come to church in the first place? If he didn't believe that he needed it, why was he there in the first place? Can I ask you a question? Why did you come to church today? Did you come because it's Sunday and that's what people do? Did you come because you felt like people expected it of you? Did you come merely to observe as a spectator? Or did you come hurting, suffering, broken, and in need of God's help? I just ask you this question. If we don't need the Lord, why do we show up? What's the purpose in any of it? To this man, this would be a challenge concerning his reasons for being there. Why had he come to the synagogue that day? Simply to hear some empty Talmudic teaching? Christ could do so much more for him. Why did you come to church if you don't desire God to work in your life? Boy, talk about the hypocrite. Talk about the hypocrite. Why'd you come if you don't want God to work in your life? Well, I came because somebody invited me. So you didn't come for God, you came for them. Well, I came because people would worry about me if I didn't. So you came for them. Well, you know, I thought people might be encouraged by me being here. We are encouraged by you being here, but that still means you came for us. Here's the right reason to go for you. And for God. Why did He come? What was His, if He didn't believe a miracle could take place today, what was His entire reason for even being here? You know why very often we don't get help? We don't come for the right reason. We don't get help because we don't come for help. In fact, oftentimes we're unwilling to acknowledge we even need help. And so we just show up to fill the stands. We show up to put bodies in the pews. We show up to show God that He, we think He's worth an hour or two. But we don't show up because we really need help. What's the point in coming if we're not going to get help? 
Hey, listen, there, there's, uh, I'm willing to say that. What's the purpose in coming if we're not going to get help? Why even bother with it? Does that not make us play the hypocrite if we're coming for any other reason? What was the purpose here? But then there's a second thing that's sort of implied. He, he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath days? Should we expect God to heal? He says to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. So not only what is your purpose here, but what are the possibilities here? What did you come expecting God to do? Knowing God in His Word, should we expect God to heal this man? That's what Christ is saying. He's saying to the Pharisees, you you fancy yourself as students of the law. You know the law. Okay, reading the law. Should we expect that a work of grace would be done in this man's life on this day? If not, then what had they come expecting? What did they think would transpire that day? What about you? Do you believe God can save life? Do you believe that He can work good in your life? Do you believe He can do that? Do you believe He can heal that hurt that you're experiencing? Do you believe he can, he can help you to forgive the way you need to forgive? Do you believe that He can give you grace to, to move past whatever has occurred? Do you believe that? Here's the question. If you don't believe that, then why did you come to church? If the answer is no, why did you come to church? If the answer is yes, then why won't you come to Him and let Him? Do you believe He can perform great things, give real victory in your life? If you don't believe that, quit wasting your time being at church. If you do believe He can, then still quit wasting your time being at church. Let me say it again. If you don't believe that, then quit wasting time being at church. If you do believe that, then quit wasting your time just being at church. There's no reason to be in the middle on this thing. I, I, I'll be honest enough with you. Hey, I, I understand. I understand the success of the church, my paycheck, all of that stuff is because of the way God is blessing our church, your faithfulness, your attending. But hey, listen, I'll just be real enough with you to say it. If it's not real, why are you playing games? Why are you showing up? Hey, what are the possibilities? What did you come to church expecting? Did you come for a sermon? Or did you come for a stirring? Did you come for a message or did you come for a miracle? Did you come for a word from the pastor or did you come for a working of the Almighty? I'll tell you this. If the only reason you came is to find out whatever spills out of my head at the end of seven days, it ain't worth it. I'm serious. It's not worth 10, 15, 20% whatever of your income. It's not worth several hours of your time each week. If the only reason you came, hey, I'll just email it to you. But if you came because you want God to do something in your life, that's a reason to show up. That's a reason to show up. So the question becomes for this man, why is he there and what is he willing to allow God to do? What are you willing to allow God to do in your life? His intentions had to be right. Notice number three, his injury is commandeered. Man, I like this. Look at verse 10. And he looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. So here we've got down to brass tacks about it, right? 
He has told this man, you got to be here. It's got to be about your, you and your relationship with God. It's got to be personal to you. You've got to be willing to respond. You've got to have the right spirit. You've got to have the right attitude. In other words, we could summarize all that by saying, it's time to get real with God. That's, that's what it means. It's time to get real with God. Time to quit playing games. But then he gives this man some instructions. And he tells him one simple thing. He says, stretch forth thy hand. But contained within that, we have a few things this man had to do. Notice number one. He has to admit his problem to the Lord. Here's what he could have done. Here's what we do. The Lord could have said, stretch forth thy hand. He could have said, my hand's fine. Why? My hand's okay. What are you talking about? It's always looked like this. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm okay. I'm all right. I don't need what you're telling me. I'm, I'm okay. You said, preacher, that would have been silly. Yeah, it would have been silly. And it's just as silly when we do it too. Somehow, man, we trust the Holy Ghost a lot till He's talking to us. Then all of a sudden, we want a second opinion. We want to hear what the TV preacher has to say about it. God's dealing with us. He is driving nails in our life. He's dealing. He's put a, a bullseye. He's put the reticle right on the way that we've been living. And God's dealing with us. He's speaking to our heart. And then all of a sudden, we start hemming and hawing. Say, well, you know, I, 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 well, I'm not sure. You know, maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's just, maybe it's just, you ain't gonna get help if you won't admit that you need help. You're just not. You're just not. This isn't a sermon. This is horse sense. This is common sense. This is plain, right? We have to admit we need help in order to get help. And this man, he could have just ignored it. He could have said, well, he must be talking to that other fellow. That's what we always do. I, listen, some of y'all, I feel bad for the people sits behind you. Because all y'all do is just scoop it over your shoulder. Them people must be the most sanctified people walking around because they get theirs and yours. No, hey, he had to admit it. By the way, let me make note of this. Hey, Christ was not doing this to humiliate the man. Nor did he force him to disclose an injury, a deformity that no one knew about. He was the man with the withered hand. Can I say this? A lot of times we think we're hiding it. A lot of times we think we're hiding it. But we ain't hiding it the way we think we are. People can tell, man. They can tell we're hurting. They can tell something ain't right. They can tell we're not the way that we were. They can tell something has happened. And it may just be a few. It may be a bunch. This man said, nobody knows about my withered hand. Yet nobody except him and God and the Pharisees and the other folks and Lucy down the street. Everybody knew about it. And so he thought he was hiding it, but he wasn't. And in fact, what he was only doing was hiding it from himself or trying to. So Christ didn't humiliate him. He didn't ask him to disclose the deformity no one knew about. The crowd already knew about his hand. Jesus simply required him to be honest about what he and everybody else already knew was broken in him. In other words, here's what I'm saying. That don't mean everything that we go through, that we have to we have to vomit that thing out in front of everybody in some big embarrassing way. I don't think God's Word advocates that. But I am saying this. If there's something going on in our life, we got to be willing to talk to God about it. we got to be willing to get honest about it. We've got to be willing to admit it. He asked this man, by the way, let me just say this. His hand never came out till it was healed. His hand never came out till it was healed. In other words, he didn't take all that brokenness and make it a stumbling block for everyone else. His hand didn't come out until it was healed. But he had to be willing to be honest and admit that brokenness to God if he wanted to get help. He had to admit his problem. Number two, he has to submit his problem. He had to give his hurt to God. That's hard, isn't it? But when he did this in his heart, the miracle occurred. By the time he stretches it out, it's whole. That tells you this. It wasn't his act of stretching it out. 
but rather it was a submission of his heart to God that allowed God to work in his heart and his life. Wasn't a parlor trick. It wasn't abracadabra, bunch of doves and rabbits. That wasn't what it was. He had his heart, he had his hurt hidden. And Jesus said, you're going to have to be honest with me. You're going to have to give it to me. And finally he said, okay, Lord, I'll give it to you. Before he ever reached it out, it was already made whole. He had to submit that thing to God. That's hard to do. Sometimes we build a big old fence around our pain and sit on top of it. Sometimes we defend it because we feel like it justifies our behavior. Sometimes we feel like it's made us uh, inculpable for all of our decisions. We feel like we can blame everything. This hurt happened to me, so I don't have to give an account for the way that I live. And I'm just being honest with you. If you don't believe this, look at the way that victimization has, has a currency on it in society today. Why is that? It's become, and I'm, I, I'm not, please, I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm not suggesting anybody wants to be a victim of anything. But I'm saying very often after people find themselves being that, they find that it provides them certain things. And oftentimes instead of letting God heal that thing, they'll put a fence around it. And they'll say, now because I have this, because I'm hurt this way, I can live however that I want to live. we got to be willing to give that thing to God. We can't say we want help and then not be willing to get help. And my little kids do this all the time. They'll come up with some absurd complex toy that you need to be a NASA engineer to know how to operate. And they'll say, Daddy, fix this. Fix it. I don't know if it's broken or whole or what it is. I don't even know what that is. But they'll say, I want you to fix this. And I'll say, well, give it to me. And they'll go, you came to me. <laughs> I didn't come to you. I, I, this is not part of a grand scheme, son, to try to get, get that complicated toy away from you that I don't even know what it is. But you know, we do that to God. God, fix this! God will say, alright, hand it here. We go. Give it up. It's what identifies me. It's who I am. It's who I've become. How could I give that up? It's, it's terrifying to me. I hate it! But it's become my security blanket. And how could I give it away? The man had to be willing to give his hand to God if he wanted his hand whole. And then notice number three. Not only did he have to admit his problem to the Lord and submit his problem to the Lord, but he had to commit his problem to the Lord. When he put his hand out, it was already healed. But he didn't know that. Think about that with me. He didn't know that. So the Lord says, I want you to treat it as though your hand is already healed. He says, stretch it out. And the implication is, because it's withered, he wouldn't be able to stretch it out unless it was whole. And so he's saying, I have healed you, now take that hand out and stretch it out and show it to everyone else. What an act of faith that was. This man was expressing, his stretching it out was a display of faith. He had to put his hand out into the open and use it again. He had to move forward, he had to go on, and he had to use that hand for the glory of God and for the work of God. You know, very often we don't get the help that we want because we want God to work in our life just simply so we feel better. Now, I'm not saying God's unconcerned with how you feel. God desires for you to feel better. But that's not the whole sum of the reason God works in our life. This man had to stand and be willing to let his healed brokenness be an example to others of the grace, kindness, nature, disposition, and ability of God. He had to stand and be willing to say, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was withered, 
but now I am whole because I was willing to trust God with it. It's a great act of faith. What if I get injured again, God? Well, the same God that healed it the first time can heal it the second time. And we say oftentimes, well, I want to give this thing to God, but what if I just pick it right back up with me? Then lay it back down again. You know what? Don't get rid of those burdens. Not bringing them to God. That don't get rid of the burdens. We say to ourselves, well, I don't want to go down to the altar and weep and commit this to God and then just be struggling with it again tomorrow. No, you'd rather struggle with it all day as well. Well, I don't want, I don't want to do that and then, and then turn around and a week later just be dealing with it again. Yeah. And if that happens, you know what you do? You deal with it again. 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 Whoever said this was a one-time thing? Talking about getting help from God. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about getting help from God. Whoever said that you'd be able to go lay it on an altar and never have to struggle with it ever again? I don't know who told you that. That's not true. Very oftentimes you will struggle with it again. But guess what? The same God that healed the wither hand the first time can heal it the second time. The same God that gave you grace the first time can give you grace the next time. That's what committing your problem to the Lord is. It's not saying, I'm going to lay this down and never struggle again. If that was what it meant, wouldn't none of us ever be able to do it. But what it is saying is, I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt that He can help me walk in victory. And if I fail, if I fall again, then I'm just going to come right back to Him. I'm going to say, Lord, I need Your help again. This is how we get help in the house of God. So the question for you today is, do you want help? Do you, number one, do you need help? Number two, do you want help? If we want help, we've got to be willing to be helped. But I think we can get help from the Lord today if we'll come to Him. Let's bow together. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. And you should know you don't have to wait for the first note to be played or any prayer to start. You can come right now to the altar and you can start getting help from the Lord. I can't fix the problems. I can't heal you. I can't help you. I can't, I can't make you whole. But God can. He can. He can do that. If you're willing to come to Him, He will do that. He will work in your life. I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm not saying it'll be without, without problems or without flaws. But I am saying the part that God does in your life, it'll be right. If you'll come to Him and let Him work in your heart and life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.